Cybersecurity, software, automotive, retail, and more. If you're an investor, you're in the right place. Motley Fool Money starts now. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Good to see you, as always, gentlemen. Hey, How hey. you doing, Chris? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Nick Majuli from Ritholtz Wealth Management is our guest. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the week in guidance. On Thursday, Microsoft officially cut their guidance for the current quarter, citing the impact of foreign exchange rates. Earlier in the week, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon said investors should brace themselves for an economic hurricane, and that his company is planning to be very conservative with their balance sheet. And after telling executives at his company that he expects them to be in the office five days a week, CEO Elon Musk said he has quote a super bad feeling about the economy <laughs> and plans to cut ten percent of the jobs. At Tesla, Ron, let me start with you because we got the monthly jobs report Friday morning. I think that's an important data point, but increasingly, I find myself paying more attention to what large companies are saying and doing. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, macro reports certainly can be interesting, but they're sometimes hard to decipher. They're even harder to predict where they're going to go next. It's safer and I think easier, quite frankly, to focus on what management teams are telling us about their companies. And for now, based on your your read right there, it certainly seems like they're telling us that weakness is here and accelerating. Economic hurricane doesn't sound that good to me, Chris. Now, I do think it's important to note that management teams don't have crystal balls either. Um, and they tend to overcorrect. So, what they see now and what they predict into the future doesn't always come to fruition. And sometimes they um, can either be too conservative or, or go the other way. But it certainly pays for us to listen, especially about the companies we're watching closely, specific to something like Microsoft, which is, is mostly a bringing down of guidance because of the strong dollar and the foreign currency impacts of that, they really only cut revenue guidance by less than 1%. And they cut profit guidance by a little over 1%. So, we can take this in and we can understand what they're doing. I don't think we need to panic, especially if it has nothing to do with the operating business and it has to do with something macroeconomic like a strong dollar that is largely out of their hands unless they're going to hedge. You know, Jason, uh, to, to what Ron was saying there in terms of companies maybe overcorrecting, you, you think about what Jamie Dimon said, how conservative they plan to be. I mean, we've been saying this for a while on this show. This is one of those times where there isn't really an incentive for companies to be anything but conservative right now. Well, I agree, and I think in regard to looking at macroeconomic reports versus 
boots on the ground. I mean, remember, right, the Fed also was saying uh, on, on repeat here for, for the last several months that inflation was, was going to be transitory, right? We see how, we've seen how that played out. So, it's, it's all to say, you, you, you got to take those types of things with a grain of salt. Look at the actual conditions on the ground. That's, that's how I, I prefer to at least take it. And I think ultimately what it does as investors, it gives us obviously a more, a more holistic picture, but, but it, it certainly feels like there are reasons to at least consider subscribing to Diamond's hurricane theory, right? I mean, when you look at consumer sentiment uh, at its lowest point, I think, in, in something like a decade, when you look at the personal savings rate now at 4.4% lowest since, I think, 2008, you consider inflation, you consider the confluence of events that are going on all over the, all over the world, and all of the things that are, generally speaking, really out of our control, right? The Fed can only do so much to try to help tame inflation and keep things uh, moving toward that soft landing we, we, we talk often about. I think it only makes sense to really actually look at what the companies are doing, because I think they, honestly, are the ones with a better look into the real economy and what's going on. And so, we've talked about this for a while. I mean, it it does feel like while we've had this labor market where it's tough to fill jobs, at some point that flips, right? The shoe goes on the other foot. It feels like that moment is getting closer and closer. And I will say, with respect to using macro in your individual company analysis for something like foreign currency impacts, we tend to not really focus on that too much because there will be years where that will be a benefit and there will be years where that um, reduces profits. And in the end, for long-term investors, for people that hold companies for long periods of time, those will even out over time. And so, we shouldn't be thinking about trading in and out because this year the, the dollar might be strong or next year the dollar may be weak. As long as we're holding companies for the long term, I think we'll be fine. All right, let's get to some notable earnings this week. And we'll start with Okta. Shares of the ID authentication company up more than 15% this week after strong first quarter results. Okta also raised their earnings guidance for the full fiscal year, Jason. Kind of notable considering the environment we're in. Yeah, obviously, one of the companies that has had a bit of a tougher year as it continues to work its way toward profitability and sustainable free cash flow growth. But this was certainly another encouraging quarter as they continue to really forge that value proposition in organizations' IT and security strategies. When you look at the numbers and revenue, $415 million, that grew 65% from a year ago. That's really, this is a subscription business, which is really nice. But that easily outperformed their own guidance, they said. Just a quarter ago, uh, their subscription backlog now at 2.71 billion dollars. That was up 43 percent from a year ago. And, and like you mentioned, I mean, boosting full year guidance just a tad. That's nice to see. And calling for revenue now for the full year of just over 1.8 billion dollars. That would represent a growth of 40 percent, assuming they hit that target. Uh, no reason, no reason to believe that they won't. Uh, particularly when you look at the customers they're bringing on. They they added. Another 800 customers bringing their total customer base to 15,800. That was up 48%. And again, as we look with a lot of these companies, the big customers, right? The customers that are spending $100,000 plus per year, that stands now over at over 3,300, and that grew nearly 60%. So I think all things considered, the business is doing very well. The big risk is obviously a security breach, and they did have an incident over this past quarter. It's worth noting. They said, based on their own assessment, there it had a what appears to be a negligible effect on the business. But that's something always to keep in mind with a business like Okta. 
Online sales growth highlighted a strong first quarter report for Lululemon Athletica. Profits and revenue were higher than expected. The company also raised guidance for the full fiscal year. Despite all that, shares of Lululemon were basically flat this week. Ron, is Wall Street not entertained? <laughs> it's curious a little. Um, yes, the report was better than expected, but margins were weak. But you might expect that margins would be weak um, for for a retailer because they are for all retailers <laughs> in the environment we're living in. So perhaps um, it wasn't strong enough to overcome um, kind of those thoughts, and investors just weren't impressed. But it was a solid quarter. Revenue up thirty two percent. Comp sales up twenty four percent. As you said, direct to consumer very strong at thirty two percent. Uh, growth that now um, the direct consumer revenue represents about forty five percent of total revenue. Um, that is pretty strong. Now management has been raising prices on selected products to offset higher costs from, as we say, the global supply chain disruptions, as well as increased raw material costs, labor costs, freight costs. It's a it's a trifecta uh, of of higher costs. Uh, CEO Calvin, Calvin McDonald said the company has not seen any negative impacts. On its sales volume as a result of those price increases. So, Lululemon exhibiting some pricing power. It is a premium product. It is a luxury product. Perhaps um, their customers are not are not as price sensitive as in some other areas. But because of those higher costs we mentioned earlier, gross margins fell. Adjusted operating margins fell. When you boil it all down. Earnings per share is still solid, up 28%. Now, finally, they're seeing a modest impact from lockdowns in China on the stores. Some vendors are struggling, but the overall impact on the quarter was more than offset by strengths in other regions. Growth plans remain on track for 40 new stores in mainland China. Let's keep an eye on that. But as you said, they did raise guidance. Trading at 32 times full year guidance right now, a premium price, but for a premium company. The automotive wars just got a lot more interesting. Details after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Signs of life from Chewy this week. First quarter profits for the pet retailer were much higher than expected, and shares ticked up a bit as well. Jason, this is another one of those companies. Rough year for the stock, but you look at the underlying business, it does seem to be improving for Chewy. Rough year. I see what you did there. That was not intentional. <laughs> I swear that was not intentional. I didn't say it, Kevin. I don't believe you. <laughs> well, Chris, I mean, listen, the love of our pets is stronger than any bear market. And stock performance notwithstanding, it really does look like Chewy's business continues to deliver the goods. Uh, I mean, I know they're delivering them to my house. And judging by the numbers, I'm not alone. Uh, revenue of $2.43 billion was up 13.7% from a year ago. Uh, they brought in $6.4 million in free cash flow. A uh, little bit of a concern on the gross margin side, 27.5%. That was down uh, 10 basis points. Not, not, not a whole heck, uh, nothing, nothing really terrible there. But it's worth noting uh, simply because they, they are uh, recognizing uh, some, some, some headwinds there on the cost side, right? Supply chains, inflation. I mean, that, that is something that plays out on this business to an extent. But the auto ship customer sales 
increased to 72.2% of total sales. That's a new record that's up from just over 69% from a year ago. And that's that's strong retention, right? That's a reliable revenue stream when people just hit that auto-subscribe button and just have that food and uh, in, in that, that those those pet goods just appear as if as if uh, from nowhere every month on their doorstep. Uh, active customers up 4.2% from a year ago. They now have 20.6 million active customers and net sales per active customer grew 15%, reached an all-time high of $446. So, they continue to leverage their marketing and ad spend, bringing that down as a percentage of revenue. That will contribute to profitability as they get there. Guiding for 16% revenue growth at the midpoint here, they will break through $10 billion in revenue this year. So, with shares valued now at around 1.3 times sales, it's been, like you said, a tough year for the business. But honestly, this looks like a really interesting opportunity for a business with, with uh, obviously, a very resilient market opportunity in, in pets. So, I think investors looking for some specialty retail, uh, yeah, keep your eyes on Chewy. There was a lot to like in the first quarter results from RH, but the luxury home furnishings company said it expects second quarter revenue to drop, and shares fell a bit on Friday. Ron, RH has been such a strong performer for a long time, but this is another one where 2022 has been a rough year for the stock. Yeah, exactly. Down 60% from its 52-week high, but even with that, still up 600% over the last five years. This is a strong report, but there clearly are some things to be concerned about. Revenue was up 11%. That's not too bad. And gross margins increased. That's interesting. The product margins increased, and the company was very careful to hold prices steady, even though demand began to weaken. Now, it's risky not to keep pace with the discounting that is going on across the industry there, but management sees the bigger risk being brand erosion and model destruction as they want to maintain that premium price point. Um, as a result, though, operating margins fell. Um, I shouldn't say as a result. As a result of new investments, operating margins fell. Um, they're introducing new concepts, things like RH Guesthouse, which is their first introduction into the hotel industry, the hospitality industry. Um, they have one location so far. If you're interested for uh, in a luxury uh, overnight stay, um, but uh, again, a solid report. Net income up 54 percent. Guidance was soft. That's what we have to watch. They see second quarter revenue down one to three percent, with margins further eroding. Full year revenue growth of only zero to two percent. So that's what's troubling here. They did authorize a large two billion dollar share repurchase program. Only 12 times earnings right here. If you want to take take a little bit of a flyer on business firming up a year or two from now. I don't want to question management that has done such a good job for so long, but why would you launch your own luxury hotel when it seems like a partnership opportunity with an existing chain it seems like an easier lift, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a very expensive proposition to, to enter into. You would want to see them stick to their knitting. They only have probably, I want to say, 67 or so galleries, um, and there's plenty of room for expansion here if they just would stick to their knitting, but they seem to be really moving into other areas pretty, pretty heavily. That's where the costs kind of add up, and that's where you have to be careful. Great week for Salesforce. First quarter profits and revenue were higher than expected. They raised earnings guidance for the full fiscal year, and shares of Salesforce rose more than 10% this week, Jason. 
Yeah, really nice week for Salesforce, uh, and, and it really is a testament just to to the value in this business, right? The market they pursue in customer relationship management, uh, getting data from all of these different communications channels today, helping businesses learn more about their target audiences, which which ultimately helps those business retain customers, drive sales, and and Salesforce is the number one player in the space there. In uh, in these numbers, really, I think just just are, are a testament to that. I mean, revenue seven point four billion dollars, up twenty six percent from a year ago. Uh, operating cash flow $3.7 billion. It was up 14%. Uh, they did update full year revenue guidance. They got it down just a tick. And, and that ultimately, though, primarily due to currency effects. And they mentioned places like Japan and the call. I think that speaks back to Microsoft's recent reiterated guide or uh, revised guidance, right? So, so I, I don't know that I'd worry too. Too much about that, uh, because when you look at, at the business itself, everything seems to be, um, as Ron would say, firing on all cylinders. Their sales cloud and service cloud businesses are both six billion dollar plus businesses. They grew eighteen percent and seventeen percent, seventeen percent respectively. Slack, the acquisition they they made uh, not not too long ago, outperformed internal expectations, brought in three hundred forty eight million dollars in revenue for the quarter versus their expectations of three hundred thirty million. And going back to those big customers. Customers, uh, those number that number of customers spending more than one hundred thousand dollars annually grew forty five percent from a year ago. Uh, the data cloud business continues to perform. Those acquisitions of MuleSoft and Tableau that's that segment of the business grew fifteen percent from a year ago. So you put that all together uh, while they did guide. Down along on the revenue side, just a tick revenue uh, for for earnings per share now four seventy five at the midpoint. That value shares today at around thirty eight times full year earnings projections. And while I wouldn't say that's cheap by conventional standards, remember number one, this is a leader in its market. Number two, it actually you know makes money. Uh, and so I think when you put that together, it, it looks like a reasonable multiple uh, for for such a strong business uh, for folks looking uh, for some opportunity in that tech space. This week, Ford Motor CEO Jim Farley said he wants to make it easier for customers to buy his company's electric vehicles. Farley said he wants Ford's EVs to be sold exclusively online with no dealer markups or price negotiations. As for marketing, Farley said their EVs are so popular they're already sold out. Quote, if you ever see Ford Motor doing a Super Bowl ad on our electric vehicles, sell the stock. <laughs> Ron, uh, bold words from someone not known in his industry as being sort of the loudest talker. Um, among other things, it seems like Farley is gunning for Tesla. You know, more so than gunning for Tesla, I think he just sees the current business model as somewhat antiquated. And a change could be a win both for the company Ford as well as the consumer. Uh, they said that the current distribution model adds around $2,000 in extra costs per car compared to Tesla. A third of that cost is tied up in inventory, another third is spent on advertising. And so, unlike Tesla, which has been able to sell directly to consumers, the traditional manufacturers have not been able to. I didn't know this, but there are laws written into some of the states that does doesn't allow car companies to go directly to consumers. So the franchise dealers are going to have to play a role, I think, at some point, unless we get the laws changed. All right, Ron Gross, Jason Moser, guys, we'll see you later in the show. But up next, author Nick Majuli has three important words of advice for investors. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Well, I left Kentucky back in 49 and went to Detroit working on assembly line. The first year they had me putting wheels on Cadillacs. 
Every day I'd watch them beauties roll by And sometimes I'd hang my head and cry Cause I always wanted me one that was long and black One day I devised myself Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Nick Majuli is the Chief Operating Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's the creator of the popular blog of Dollars and Data, and he is the author of the new book, Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. He joins me now from New York City. Nick, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Chris. bunch of things I want to get to. Let's start with the book. I think you've pulled off something rare when it comes to this category of books, and that is this is a book about money and investing that I think is really for everyone. Uh, you know, it's for younger people who are just starting out. It's for people who are starting from square one financially. It is, you know, there are parts of this book that are very much for people like me, sort of older people getting closer to retirement. Uh, all these different ages and groups, you've managed to write something just for them. Was that your intention when you started the book, or was that something that you just sort of realized through the process of writing it? Yeah, I think I wanted to make sure I had like a very big market because I think, you know, in the first chapter, I talk about this thing called the save invest continuum. And that's basically like how much money you're saving versus how much your investments can earn you. And basically, which one of those is higher basically tells you where you are in your financial journey, where you should be given, you know, given you've been saving for a long time. And so what I realized was that one idea, like if you, if you can save a lot of money, but your investments aren't earning you a lot, you're probably very early in your career and you have maybe high income. Them, right. But if your investments can earn you a lot of money, but it's really hard for you to kind of save more to keep up with that, right? Then you're probably later in your career. You're probably retired. You probably have a very big nest egg that's earning you a lot of money if the market goes up 10%. Let's say I'll use an extreme example. Let's say you have $10 million. Market goes up 10%. That's now, you know, a million bucks. Like it'd be very difficult for someone who's, you know, 22, 23 years old to save a million dollars after tax, right? So that simple idea became the framework for the entire book. And that's kind of kind of how I wanted to frame it. I wanted to people to be able to take anyone be able to read it and take something away from it. Now, of course, not everything's going to be applicable. If you're 70 years old and you're not working anymore, you don't need to learn about savings. So I say skip that section. You know, so that was kind of the idea. Keep it as as broad as possible for everybody. Right. I, I do love that. I, it's the first time I can remember an author just openly telling the reader, like, you can skip this if you want. This might not be for you. You can skip the chapters later in the book. Um, there's so much data in the book, and yet there really are some emotional underpinnings, and we'll get to those in a second. But Part of what you do in this book is use data uh, to make different points uh, about saving and investing. I mean, the you know it's right there in the title uh, for anyone who who um, didn't clue into that. I mean, just the idea that the way to financial independence is to consistently buy over time. Um, there are a couple of myths that you sort of use data to. Bust, I guess. Um, was there a part of the book that was more fun for you to write? Yeah, I think my favorite chapter was chapter 17, which was talking about buying during a crisis, which is basically like this idea of like when the market's down badly, like how do you kind of keep yourself motivated and how do you reframe thinking about purchasing when the markets are down bad so that you can kind of keep the faith and keep buying early? That's really because I think it's the toughest thing to do is when you, know, you see markets are down 15, 20, 30, 40, 50%, how do you keep the faith and not just give up on everything? Right. And so that's kind of where that came in. So I, that was my favorite chapter to write. But I think the most surprising chapter was the second one where I realized like, 
there isn't this major retirement crisis like we're told in the mainstream media. You know, when when only one in seven retirees are selling down the principal in their assets, right? Their nest egg. Six out of seven are living off Social Security and just the and what the investments are generating, right? So it's actually kind of a surprising result. After I saw that, I was like, how is that possible? Right. Obviously, there are people who are struggling. So I'm not here to like minimize that, but I don't think they're it's not a general retirement crisis. It's a crisis that's affecting a smaller subset of the population. And therefore our policy responses should be set to those people and not to, there's not a huge retirement crisis. Like I've heard for so many years. I'm assuming for people who are older and in that situation, there has to be an adjustment that goes on there. If you've been someone who's just worked and methodically saved and invested over time, when you actually retire, I'm assuming there's an adjustment of, oh, wait, should I be spending money because I don't have an income now? Yeah. And that's why it's scary. It's really scary for people. And this is true of anyone, even people who have a lot more, a higher net uh, net worth and things like that. We have clients where it's, it's tough. We have to kind of teach them how to spend money. It's like, you think about it. If someone's a very good, diligent saver, let's say the 80th, 90th percentile on saving, and now they have to go and go from that to uh, flipping the switch to the other side. It's really, really tough, especially if they have a lot of money. It's like, wait, I have to spend two, I can spend two or three X what I've ever spent in my life. And I still won't run out of money. It's like, yeah, that, that sometimes happens. And for younger people who are just starting out, I like the fact that you make the point in the book, your savings rate shouldn't be static because your income is not static. And that also goes against uh, you know, what some people advise, that it's like, no, you have to have this rigorous savings rate no matter what your income. Yeah, I think it just creates guilt for you one way or another. So, like, if you're like, oh, I saved 20%, I have all this extra money, I might as well spend it, right? It's like you're going to be wasteful in some circumstances. And then in times where it's tough, or maybe you're going through you had a job loss or something, like, I, or you ha- your income got reduced, you have to, and you're trying to save 20%. And then you're like feeling guilty every time you spend money. It's like you you lose on both ends, right? It's like, no, you should just save what you can. And so, and if you're like, I'm not saving enough, then you need to increase your income so that you can. That's really my, I think that's the sustainable path outward. That's the long-term path. It's not a short, the best short-term solution is to cut your spending, but that's really, really difficult. And I just, and I explain why that's difficult. So you can do that in the short term, but the long run path is income. And I think the data is overwhelmingly in support of that. Thank you for pushing back on the more extreme elements in the financial media universe who advocate a Spartan lifestyle that never involves treating oneself to a cup of coffee. I appreciated that. Um, Along those lines, what do you splurge on? I I know you live in New York City. You don't have a car. Um, When you're looking to treat yourself, what what form does that take? Uh, restaurants. So I like going to nice restaurants. And for me, it's like, I would say, I, if I told people some, some amounts I've spent at restaurants, it's an exorbitant amount of money, but I don't spend money on other things, right? It's like this t-shirt's like 20 bucks, right? I don't have super nice clothes. I don't have a car, right? You know? And so I think most of my, most of my money spent obviously on rent is New York city, but then where I'm actually being exorbitant is probably restaurants. I just, I just like experience going out, things like that. Let me get to a couple of the chapters. Um, and one that, when I looked at the table of contents before I even started reading the book, the chapter heading that leaped out to me was why you shouldn't buy individual stocks, which once I read the chapter, because I read that and I thought, oh boy, is the, are, are we going to get in a fight here <laughs> if, I, if I interview Nick? But what I realized is that um, among other things, you're, you're a kindred spirit of uh, our mutual friend, Morgan Housel, um, that it's just... Uh, uh, for you, and let's face it, for a lot of people, um, 
it's not necessarily about the finances. It's also about sort of the emotions that go into buying individual stocks. Yeah, I think a lot of it. So, yeah, we can talk about the performance stuff. We can talk about the SPIVA reports, SPIVA. You can look those up and you can see performance stuff. But let's put that aside. Let's not even talk about the financial aspects. I think the tough part of having most of your wealth and just like a handful of individual stocks is just like it's an existential issue. Like, Chris, if you and I picked a basket of stocks and we waited a year and yours and your basket, it was higher than mine. Like, does that are a better stock picker? Like, we can't say with certainty. You might be, and like statistically, if we did that for three, five, 10 years, it probably you'd probably be a better stock picker over the long run, right? Over a 10, 20 year period for sure. We could identify that. But there's still a lot of luck involved. And that's what makes it tough for me. And so in so many endeavors in life, we can identify talent pretty easily. In others, it's very difficult. And I think stock picking is one where there's so much luck involved that it's really difficult. And so for most people, I don't think you should be spending all your time in a place where you can't really identify if you're, you know, lucky or not. Now, of course, I'm not against people's taking a, a portion, a small portion of their wealth, five, 10%, whatever, and kind of putting into individual stocks or doing it for fun. That's completely fine. But I think there's the portion of your wealth that you need to like grow and you just need that to happen. Then you want to have fun with a, a little piece of it. That's fine. But I just don't think most people should be having most of their money in only individual stocks, a handful of individual stocks. So is your approach broad index, uh, ETFs, that sort of thing? Yeah, cheap, broad-based index ETFs, um, and a lot of other things. And remember, that's not the only way. I'm not saying you have to own stocks. There are people that have gotten rich in real estate. There are people that have gotten rich with farmland. There's a lot of ways to do this, and I think that's another big misconception in the wealth building industry. It's like, oh, I have the true path to wealth, but it's like, no, you're, that's not true because I know so many rich real estate people that don't even touch stocks, and I know so many rich stock people that don't even touch real estate, and vice versa. So it's more about finding what works for you. So, for example, I don't think I'm ever going to own any uh, real estate outside of my own primary residence. I don't think I'm ever going to own like an investment property because I don't want to deal with tenants and all that. I don't like that personally. So that's just my personal thing. Of course, that may change, but that's just how I feel. Some people love that. And they say, I don't want to put a lot in stocks. I really would rather manage properties. And so that's great for them. So I'm trying to kind of give you a plethora of options and then you can kind of pick and choose what makes sense for you. I think that makes more sense than saying, this is the only way to get rich. As I said, there's a ton of data that you do a wonderful job of bringing to light in the book. But I think for my money, one of the most important chapters is late in the book, a chapter entitled Why You Will Never Feel Rich. And for me, it was it was pretty illuminating um, because it's it's something that I've wondered about, particularly with you know, seeing people either in the financial media or just in in sports, entertainment, people who are exponentially wealthier than I am. And I have wondered, like, wait, do they feel rich? Because uh, you know, I remember hearing Neil Brennan, the uh, stand-up comedian, tell a story about um, the times in his life when he's been on a private jet, and it is someone else's private jet. Um, Every single time he has been on someone's private jet, and said something like, "Wow, this is really nice," whoever's jet it is points to another jet at the private airport and says, well, yeah, this, this private jet is nice, but what I really wanted, I was kind of hoping to get that one. And I just thought, oh my God, that's, yeah, there's, even among the super wealthy, on some level, nobody feels rich. It's very true. And I think, 
it's because you keep moving into social circles. Like as you gain more wealth, you probably start consuming slightly differently. You probably get into different social circles You move to a different address, whatever it is, you start getting into social circles where there's other people spending more money. You're going to just run into richer people, right? As you start getting more successful, you're going to get invited to different events. All these sort of things happen and you can always end up on that treadmill. So how do you kind of solve for that? You have to like, remember where you're from and think of your wealth in like absolute terms, not always on this ever changing relative terms. Right. And so the example I use, I say, you know, if you have a hundred thousand dollars in net worth in the world, that puts you in the top 10% globally. Right. And I would say someone in the top 10% is rich. And now you'd say, well, Nick, that's not fair. You can't compare me to like random people elsewhere in the world. It's not a fair comparison. Like I, you know, I understand an argument, but in the book, I talk about Lloyd Blankfein, who is the uh, ex Goldman Sachs CEO. And he says, he's not rich. She just well to do it, but he's a billionaire. But the issue is he's hanging out with people like David Geffen, Jeff Bezos, people who have, you know, 10, hundred times his wealth. And so he doesn't feel rich relative to them. Now you're going to say, well, Nick, that his argument's ridiculous, but he's making the same argument. If I'm going to say, well, he's rich. You're saying, well, he's going to say, I'm not rich. Cause you can't compare me to average people like you and me, Chris, he's going to say like, oh, I'm a different. So he's using the same argument that we would use when we're comparing us to people like, let's say in the developing world, he's going to use that argument against us. Cause, cause we're not in his social circle. Right. And so I understand that. And so I'm not saying it's right. This is obviously a more outlandish argument on, on objective terms, but it's the same argument. I mean, we're just cutting hairs where like, what is rich really? I mean, you can say I'm rich, but globally, but maybe you're not rich, you know, locally or some other way. Right. So it's just about realizing that, like, how do you define rich, set some sort of absolute metric and then judge yourself based on that and your background and where you could be. That's kind of the better way to do it instead of always like, you know, chasing that feeling of trying to be rich and then never feeling it. Before I let you go, uh, just want to touch on your blog for a second. Uh, and again, the blog is online. It's called Of Dollars and Data. You wrote something earlier in the week entitled Rallies to the Bottom. And I was hoping you could just share a little bit of that with the listening audience because you unpacked some data that I think is worth keeping in mind. Yeah. So, you know, we just had, I mean, before this week, um, we had seven losing weeks in a row and then we finally had a winning week. Thank gosh. Right. So, um, now we have a, you know, the S and P is now on a sort of positive streak now broke the negative streak. But the issue is like a lot of times when you see that, like that could just be like a rally, but then we keep going lower. And in the examples, I went through the four biggest crashes in U S stock market history, you know, in the 1900s, which include, you know, 1932 was the bottom there, 1974, 2003 and 2009. And when I looked at those, all of those had at least three rallies of more than 10% gains before they continued their decline. And for example, the, the great depression, which obviously the worst had an 89% total decline from top tick to bottom tick. But over that period, there were six separate rallies of over 10%. One of those rallies was a 48% gain, right? The first rally after that first big crash, that first big rally was, you know, from that bottom, you gained about 48% from that local bottom. And then it kept going lower over that, of course, the next two and a half years. So it's one of those things where like, just because we have a rally, that doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet. So just, you know, keep in mind, I'm not saying, Oh, we should move to cash and no, it's nothing like that. I'm not trying to scare people. I'm just saying you need to understand the nature of markets. If you want to be a good investor you have to realize how these things happen. And we might have a rally to the bottom and it, it's terrible if it happens, but just be, be prepared for it. That's what you have to do. It's like recognizing what can happen and then acting accordingly. The book is Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. It is available everywhere you find books and you should pick up a copy because it's great. Nick Majuli, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Appreciate it. After the break, Jason Moser and Ron Gross return with a couple of stocks on their radar. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. 
be happy. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Guys, time to get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Sure. Well, I feel like I told you our recent trip to France. It just reiterated to me the value, the necessity of a company like Uber in this day and age. Um, I'm going with Uber this this week as my radar stock ticker. U B E R. Um, Uber is just a mobile and digital giant. As the world becomes more connected, this company's market opportunity grows. Plain and simple. They've got three primary segments of the business: there, mobility, delivery, and freight. Uh, also, a burgeoning advertising business there. Lots of different ways to cross-sell. Uh, Uber has reached verb status, much like Google, and I don't think you can underestimate the power of that. Um, and they're also building out, interesting, I don't know a lot of people know this, they're building out a membership side of the business now, which I think is very compelling. Members spend 2.7 times more than non-members, and they exited 2021 with over 6 million members in total for their different membership offerings. So I think when you put that all together, this is a business still kind of getting its, its, its feet or its wheels underneath it, so to speak. A uh, lot of opportunity left, though, as the world becomes more connected. So, this is one I'm digging into. Dan, question about Uber? Yeah, Jason, how's that total addressable market looking these days? Huh? Is it still literally everyone on the planet? It basically is, and they refer to that mobility, delivery, freight, three multi-trillion-dollar market opportunities as they quote it, Dan. So, any which way you cut it, take it with a grain of salt, it's still a biggin'. Make no mistake, people. There are always going to be those things we will never forget about certain companies. And in Uber's case, was it their S1 filing where they said our total total addressable market is every person on the planet? Awesome. They're not wrong. Ron Gross, what are you looking at this week? An update for those that have heard me talking about Titan International, TWI, industrial tire and wheel manufacturer, for years. And maybe, maybe you even bought it on my recommendation. It's been a long road. I have been talking about and owning this stock for nine years now. Patience appears to have paid off because of the current economic environment. Business is strong. TWI's order books are full through 2022, and 2023 could be even better, management says. The price of corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, near historic highs. There's no surplus out there, which should lead farmers to spend more on equipment for quite some time. Shares are up 75% this year. This year, in this market environment, at about $19 a share, only trading at 7.5 times their recent EBITDA guidance. Back in December, Titan's chairman pulled an interesting move by suggesting shares could be worth $24 a share. He's an interesting guy if you want to read some of his letters. So, according to him, still 25% upside left from here. To be totally transparent, I did sell 10% of my stake earlier in the week. I still have 90% left. I will sell into strength if the stock continues to go into the 20s. Dan, question about Titan International? I'm just happy that old economy Ron is back in the driver's seat, the proverbial driver's seat, and is talking about Titan International again. What a great time to be an investor. Thank you, Daniel. 
two stocks that are uh, related in a lot of ways. Obviously, Dan, uh, you got one you want to add to your watch list? I'll tell you what, Chris. What does every Uber need? That's right, <laughs> tires. Every vehicle that doesn't have rails needs tires. I don't think tires are going anywhere. I think I'm going to go Titan International this time, mainly because I like the stock price. It's very affordable. Very nice. Ron Gross, Jason Moser, guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.